and found him to be very helpful and usually very enjoyable to to listen to. And he was he had a whole sermon on this text. And in his introduction, he said to the to his congregation, he said, "I've changed my view on Genesis six one time in 25 years." Um, <clears throat> But I've changed it three times in the last week as I've studied this text. (laughs) And then he said, and I thought this was very insightful. He said, I knew what the passage said until I read it carefully. And boy, is that, right? So I I knew what what the passage said until I read it carefully. So let's let's begin by just trying to do that, right? To, to the best of our ability, let's kind of set aside our questions and any of the answers we might have to those questions. And let's just see what the text tells us. Okay? The text tells us, and we didn't read it all, but, but we have a lot of information relative to the, to the newness of the world and the population. We have a lot of information about this man named Lamech. And Lamech seems to be, I will make this argument in a few weeks in a Sunday morning sermon, Lamech seems to be a man who is representative of worldly philosophy. Right? He, is, he is espousing the world as he sees it. And he has a son by the name of Noah. And Noah is one of those guys, folks, like Abraham that we will get to, that we want to always understand in our minds very clearly the sequence of events. First, there is God's grace shown, and then there is the evidence of God's grace in his life. There is not some inherent goodness that precedes God's selection of them. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And from there, then, our attention is turned. We have, right, we have Noah, and we have mention of his sons. And we will return to Noah and his sons. And they will become, of course, integral in the Bible story. But then we have the events in Genesis 6, 1 through 7. Okay, so let's just walk through the passage again and just read it. I'm not saying that you never have read it carefully, but let's just together... As an assembly, let's read through it and look at it together. Verse number one of chapter six is setting the stage for us. It is providing the context for these events. It came to pass when man began to multiply on the face of the earth. So we have Noah and his three sons, but there are lots of other people who are alive at this particular point in time. And right, so we have this the, the timing is this, not a date on a calendar. But this is the timing that is happening. Men are multiplying on the face of the earth, and daughters are born unto them. And so we have a very distinct identification, right? I mean, statistically, by the way, and, and I don't know the exact number, but statistically, out of 100 people that are born, and I know you can't do this, right? It's going to be half boys and half girls, but statistically, there are slightly more boys born than there are girls. Like out of a thousand, there's going to be 501 men and 499 girls. That's going to be, that's probably a little extreme or a little 
large even for that. But statistically, there are slightly more boys born than there are girls. The text here is not arguing that there are no boys born, but the text is focusing upon the fact that there are girls in the world, and the girls are going to play a distinctive role in what is happening. So we have the setting of the stage. We have that in verse number one. And in verse number two, we have an activity that accompanies this. Right? We have, we have, let's just call it in words we might use, we have a population explosion. But we don't just have a population explosion. We have something that is a consequence of that. That the sons of God saw, verse number two, the daughters of men, back in verse number one, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now, I don't yet want us to try and get to the place of figuring out who the sons of men are or the sons of God are, because we know how tricky that can be. But I do want to talk about the fact that the word Ben is that the word son is distinctly masculine. So the text is not just pointing out to us that there are people, which it could easily say there are lots of people, and everybody would understand that if there are lots of people being born, some of them are going to be boys and some are going to be girls. But the text is telling us distinctly that there are girls that are born, and then it is telling us that there are these men, these males that exist, distinctly masculine in nature, and they are acting upon something that is as old as creation itself. Right? They are picking girls that they find attractive. That's what the text is telling you. If you look at it, right? We're just trying to look at it carefully. We're just trying to, we're not trying to analyze it yet. We're just trying to see what it tells us. Right? There, the, the world's population is growing. And among those that are growing, there are girls. And then there are these sons of God, and they are noticing that girls are attractive. They are pretty. That's what the word fair means. It doesn't mean equitable. It means attractive. The girls are pretty, attractive. And on the basis of being attracted to them, they chose from these girls wives. They took them wives of all which they chose. Which, by the way, I would argue the text does not comment upon whether these are entirely monogamous relationships or whether they are even polygamous in nature. Certainly, Lamech is going to be an advocate of polygamy because he's got two wives. That brings us then to verse number three, which is a commentary. So we have the setting of the stage in verse number one and the activity that stems from it in verse number two. And we have a divine commentary about what's going on. What does God say? And this, by the way, folks, is one of the questions that is really complicating this whole story to us. Right? If all we have are Genesis 6, 1, and 2, before we go down any of the rabbit holes of who these parties might be, What we're watching is a complete fulfillment of what God told Adam and Eve to do. Fill the earth. Populate the planet. 
But now we have verse number three in which God describes for us, and, and it's just inconceivable, folks, okay? It's just virtually inconceivable that Genesis 6-3 is not God's commentary upon Genesis 6-1 and 2. Now, and, and I'm saying that because there are going to be some people, I mean, if you go to the internet and you start doing the research and you get all the commentaries on Genesis, somebody is going to argue that Genesis 6-3 probably doesn't go there. <clears throat> right? Because it's, it's almost an intrusion into the storyline. And so it was probably added later by, a, by an editor. You know, Moses didn't really write that. Somebody came along after Moses and put that all in there. But it most certainly, folks, appears to be God's divine commentary on the activity that he sees in verses 1 and 2. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be in 120 years. My spirit, right? And we have back in creation the spirit of the Lord hovering over the planet shall not always, <clears throat> I will not continue to do this. This cannot keep going as it's going. The word strive has the idea of contending or arguing. It is used 24 times in the Old Testament. It is usually translated with the word judge, as in to stand in judgment. I would understand God arguing that he is not going to continue in this ongoing debate with men and women about what is right and wrong. That it cannot continue. And this is because, folks, in verse number three, he is simply flesh. And while the text does not tell us, the text does not need to. God is not flesh. God is not a man. And so here is God looking upon the activity of his creation in Genesis 6, 1 and 2. And he is looking at this and he is really kind of conversing with himself for our sake that he is not going to allow this to continue, that men are only flesh. And so he makes then a proclamation of time, 120 years. So there is a judgment rendered, and but it is a judgment rendered in mercy. There's 120 years. And that brings us to Genesis 6-4, which is both a summary, I think, of the events of verses 1 through 3, and a transition into what comes next. But again, it's one of those, if we're looking at it carefully, we could ask ourselves the question, what does, before we ask, who are the people, we ask, why is it here? There were giants in the earth in those days. And so again, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence, but if we ask what days, well, we have to go back to Genesis 6.1. Those are the days that are being discussed. In the days when the daughters of men and the sons of God were getting married, there were giants in the earth in those days. Now, I'm going to throw the Hebrew word at you. You may have the note in your Bible, or you may have heard it. It is the word Nephilim. 
Almost beyond any shadow of a doubt, when you read it in your Bible, you immediately think of people who are large physically, but it need not be confined to their physical size. And of course, we all want to know where the giants came from. There were giants in those days. Why were there giants and where did they come from? Now, just a side note, and I would not really necessarily encourage this, so I probably shouldn't even raise it, but if you listen to podcasts, Malcolm Gladwell has really some very interesting podcasts on things that are unusual, and this is not one of his podcasts, but you can find Malcolm Gladwell, who is obviously an unbeliever, on YouTube giving his explanation for the accounts of David and Goliath in which he ascribes to Goliath some physical deformity that made him that size, which he may have. But, all right, so here's a point, folks, right? So at this point in time, let me, let me get a little bit ahead of myself and throw this question to you. How is it possible that Goliath and the giants that you read about in the Old Testament have no imaginable connection to the giants in Genesis 6-4? And they have no connection. How is it possible? How can it be, folks, that the giants in Genesis 6-4 have nothing to do with Goliath? Anybody? Whoever, whoever is living in Genesis 6-4 is not living in Genesis 9-1. With the exception of Noah and his descendants. They're all dead, folks. Everybody that we're reading about in Genesis 6, 1 through 7, they're all, they all died in the flood. Only Noah and his three sons and their four wives survived. Which only, only adds right to the question of why are you telling me this? Why, why is God explaining something to us that has really no bearing? There's, there's no legitimate way to tie Goliath or any of the other giants back to what we're reading here. But there were giants in the land in those days. And also after that, which is another curious construction of grammar, also after that, Are we being told that in addition to the giants, there is this? Or are we being told that because there were giants, what we read follows? And I would just point out to you that that is one of those things that if you began to read the literature, you would find lots of discussion of. Also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, so now we're back to Genesis 6-2, And they bear children to them. The same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. So again, folks, part of the question, right? I understood the passage until I read it carefully. One of the questions that we're not really even going to try to answer is, is is Genesis 6-4 being, right? Is the giants the result of the marriages and the children? Or, equally valid grammatically, are there giants 
And while there are giants in the land, there are offspring born to whoever is getting married in Genesis 6-2. Beyond any shadow of a doubt, folks, whether, if, whether they are the giants or not, right? When the sons of God marry the daughters of men, there are children conceived, and those children became mighty men, which were men of renown. And the first mighty man in the Bible is Nimrod. But sometimes mighty men is just used to describe heroic warriors, ordinary men who are valiant in battle. And they are of old, they are there almost from the beginning of the world, and they are men of reputation. That's what verse number four was referring to, men of renown. They were men with a name. That's literally what's being explained to you. They were men with a name. So, I mean, sir, I mean, you know, I, I, right, if, you, if you plug your name into Google, right, you might find out a little of information about yourself. If you plug Bill Gates' name into Google, you have... I don't know, what do you have, a month's worth of reading? Because he's the kind of guy that we're talking about here, somebody with a name. And most of us are people who don't have that kind of reputation. Everybody has a name, but there's no reputation. So when we get to end of verse number four, folks, here's the scenario. And again, I'm not trying to identify who these people are or who the parties are, but there has been presented to us a very clear scenario. There is some form of marriage going on, Genesis 6, 1 and 2. This marriage has resulted, 6, 3, in God's displeasure, and in 6, 4, a particular dimension of human beings. Mighty men of name. Mighty men of name. That much is very clear. What becomes a little less clear is this. Who are the daughters of men? And even more controversially, who are the sons of God? And then thirdly, are the giants the product of those marriages? Or is that just a note that there are giants in the land? And are they physical giants or are they giants of stature and economy? I mean, going back in American history, we might label men like J.P. Morgan, Andrew Carnegie, as giants or titans, but they were not physically imposing men. That's the kind of giant we're talking about. Why is verse 3 there, and why is God being critical of what's happening? Well, let me just very quickly try and touch on the first two questions. Who are the daughters of men and who are the sons of God? 
And I would just guess that if I handed you a piece of paper and asked you to write out the answer, we would have a variety of answers. To deal with this very simply, your answer is probably, but I'm not going to try and put words in your mouth, but probably your answer is going to fall broadly into one of three general positions. All right? So I'll throw it out. And seriously, I'm not, I'm not, and I'm not trying to embarrass anybody, put anything, throw anybody in the bus. But when I go through the three positions, if you hold a position that is radically different than that, because there are going to be nuances to the positions. But if you hold a position that is radically different than that, I would like to know what it is. So here they are, broadly speaking, simply speaking, who are the daughters of men, who are the sons of God? You're going to answer that question in one of three ways. Way number one is that these are marriages made between human beings and angels. Between human beings and angels. That the daughters of men are mortal human beings and the sons of God are angelic. And of course, folks, one of the reasons that this is so controversial is that there are pros and cons for every one of the arguments and none of them can be repudiated Clearly, of course, Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty that angels don't marry. But another question that we have to ask is, was it always that way? We know that angels can take on human form. We know that they can function in some way as human beings do. And towards the end of the New Testament, we seem to have we have a couple of passages that seem to indicate God's unique judgment upon a unique dimension of fallen angels. I'll just read them to you. 2 Peter 2, 4, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, that seems to lead us to believe that there are some angels, fallen angels, who are not just out floating around in the stratosphere doing Satan's bidding but that they are actually, for some reason, already being, con- being held in anticipation of condemnation. In Jude 1.6, and there's just so many similarities between Jude and Second Peter as to be uncanny, the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. <clears throat> so this is a very common, popular, I'm not being critical of it, I've I've held to it, I would not fight with it, Um, that what we have here is in the very early days before the flood, we have this unusual situation in which we have human women and angelic men and they have children and these children then become the giants and the mighty men of name in the world. So there's one possibility. Again, very simply, second opinion or position that is held by many is that these are normal human beings, girls, and demonically possessed men. Demonically possessed men. Now, the trickier part there, folks, although there are tricky parts to all of it, is explaining how a demonically possessed man transmits 
some unique aspect of humanity into his offspring. So you have human beings and angels, human beings and demonically possessed human beings, and the third position is that what we have here is a description of relationship between unbelieving women, the daughters of men, and believing men, the sons of God. And these saved men are attracted to the women simply on account of their beauty. In other words, they're not, they're not making the right kind of judgment about why they want these wives. They want them because they're attractive. So again, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I'm just saying that most people are going to come to a a decision based on one of those three positions. Is there any other alternative position to those that you have heard or that you would hold? Human angelic marriages, human demon-possessed human marriages, saved and unsaved human marriages. I just, I, I think broadly speaking, simply, you're at the, you, may, you may nuance that in some way. But then I would point this out, folks. I would argue as fascinating as we might find that kind of discussion, and these are the kind of things that people like to debate. Who are the daughters of men, and who are the sons of God, and who are the giants? that it is not really necessary to solve that dilemma to understand the text because that's not what the text is about. I mean, we're gonna, look, I mean I, I'm, I'm not trying to insult you because I'm not saying that we do this. I don't think that we, and, and I don't think that anybody's, you know, crazy obsessed with these kinds of discussions in our church folks but let's just make sure that we understand as we are standing on the cliff of Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 and 11 that raise several of these kinds of very opaque issues that God never wrote any of the scripture for our amusement or simply to for our curiosity's sake. That, that there is always a spiritual agenda that accompanies what he says. So let me suggest to you <clears throat> what the text is pointing out to us. Right? Because then we come to verse number 5. Well, let me, I'll come back to that. Right? So here's what we have, folks. In Genesis 5... We have the birth of Noah. And his father, who is in many ways the epitome of unbelieving civilization, nevertheless makes a proclamation about his son Noah. He will be our rest. In between the birth of Noah and the salvation of Noah, Genesis 6-8, 
what is really being explained to us is that when you multiply people, you multiply human sinfulness. Right? The text doesn't read, if I, may, if I may put it this way, the text doesn't read that Adam and Eve were successful in fulfilling their mission to fill the earth with godly people who would extend the Garden of Eden around the globe. Who would multiply true worship, would pass along true godliness to their children. But what we find is, as a world increases in human population, increasingly we find a world that makes God uncomfortable I cannot continue to allow this to happen. There will be 120 years, and I will bring this to an end. That's what the text is really trying to get us to see. That the multiplication of people is the multiplication of sin, and the multiplication of sin is something that God will not tolerate without end. We can carry that, folks, all the, those people are dead. We've, right, those people are all dead. Whoever those people were. If we had angels somehow procreating with human women and giving birth to these gigantic, supernaturally empowered human beings, they all died in the flood. But what didn't die in the flood, and we will get to this, in Genesis 9, is human depravity. The flood destroyed most of humanity, but the flood did not destroy human depravity. That brings us then to Genesis 6-5, in which we have, and again, this is very common in Hebrew, for the sake of emphasis, we have repetition. Kind of review it again, tell it to you in a little bit different way, from a different perspective, use some different words, but we're going to make the same point. God saw, verse number five, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. So, right, how do you view the world? One way of viewing the world is through Genesis 6, 4 eyes. There are powerful people of reputation who are governing the planet, right? One way to see the world, folks. One way to see the world is to see the world's leading politicians and the world's leading businessmen and to see the way that they seem to operate in sync with each other, one supporting the other and, and using their power and their prestige to oppress other people to bring about their purposes. That's one way to see the world. But that's not the only way to see the world. God doesn't see big people. God sees big sin. That's God's viewpoint of the world. God is not impressed with people of name. 
folks. Do, do we understand this? Right? This is not in Genesis 6, 1 through 8. But the only thing that a human being could ever possibly do, possibly, in all of the things that a human being would do, the only thing you could ever do that would impress God is believe him. That's it. No other accomplishment would have any bearing on him. How rich, how fast, how athletic, how intelligent, how influential, how smart. Those are all consequences of his activity in that life. The only thing that ever impressed Jesus was when people believed him. So there are a couple of ways of viewing the world. You can view the world through Genesis 6, 4 eyes. There are big people, movers and shakers, men like Nimrod who are getting things done. Not good things, but we all have to live under their shadow. Or there's the Genesis 6, 5 world in which we are confident that God is aware of the sinfulness in the world. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So there is a context. Widespread, <clears throat> deep-rooted sinfulness. It is extensive. It is in every corner of the earth and it is inside every individual to the place that God's testimony is the only thing people think about are sinful things. And then there is a commentary, verses 6, 7, and 8. Right, so in verses 1 through 4, we have, right, we have kind of a setting, a context, and we have an activity, and we have a commentary. And in Genesis 6, 5 through 8, we have a context. The imagination of men is only evil. We have activity. Men are doing evil things. We have a commentary. Commentary verse number 6. This is a commentary about God's feelings. Excuse me, I think I'm going to sneeze. Try not to. Verse number 6. It repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. <coughs> that is incredibly emotional. And again, folks, we're not going to get into trying to psychoanalyze God about how a God who knows everything could possibly ever come back and be grieved at what he had done. That is what the text tells us. It is presenting God in very human terms. This is certainly not what he intended when he created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden. And so the Lord says in verse number 7, he makes a declaration upon the basis of man's sinfulness. I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. Both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. 
And again, folks, if all we had is verse number 7, right? I mean, if all we had is verse number 7, we wouldn't be here to be reading it. Because all of humanity would have ended. But there is mercy. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So that the race that he created, he will spare. And again, folks, we can... We can trace through the remainder of the Bible to see the sovereignty of God that from the very beginning, it was God's purpose always that the only human being who could ever live to the ideal that he has set is himself as a human being in the person of Jesus Christ. So this is, this is where we are. We are seeing the spread of sin through the through the spread of humanity. And in, in light of that, folks, right? In light of that. That's, and that's what I said, with reference to the three positions, right? I, I think that to make the male party and the female party both equally human is essential to understand understanding what's going on with the creation, right? The creation is not about demonic forces creating a race of superhuman beings but i wouldn't i wouldn't fight you over that okay so it's quarter tilt